as you guys know, we've been in a series called Upside Down, where we've been exploring the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew. So a famous preacher um, once said that the disciples, Jesus should have told them to stand on their heads, to stand upside down when he told the Beatitudes to them, because they were that radical and they were going to change the way that they viewed the world. So the Beatitudes are a way for Jesus to declare what life in the kingdom of God is like. He's announcing to his new followers, this is what life is like when I'm king and when I'm in charge. We learn through these nine statements that those who are hungry and craving for God, they will be filled. Those who are mourning and depressed, the people who can barely get out of bed in the morning, they will be comforted. The activists in our world who are longing for justice, who can't wait for God's justice to roar down like waters, they will be filled as well. They will be satisfied. In the Beatitudes, we find the people you might expect a powerful king would forget about or abandon or not consider important. Those are the very people that Jesus says are blessed in his kingdom coming from heaven. So I'm going to read the Beatitudes for us again. And I'm going to invite you all to close your eyes. And as I read, I'm going to lead us through some imagining. And I just invite you to let Jesus' vision of his particular kingdom to wash over you. So please close your eyes. So imagine you're one of Jesus' new followers. You just dropped everything. You left your fishing nets by the sea. And you left your family to follow this mysterious, compelling man. And as you've been following him, every single person in his path, he's healed, delivered, and proclaimed good news to. Or maybe imagine you're a member of the crowd. You're not quite sure yet about this Jesus man, so you're on the outskirts looking in, but you can't deny that your sister, who was sick for so long, is now healed at one powerful word from this man. Or imagine you just came home from a long day as a peasant laborer. Your clothes are dirty, you're exhausted. You have no idea if your family will have enough to eat. And this man is on the road and he yells out, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. You are curious what this kingdom could mean for you and your family. So you walk up one of the rolling hills next to the Sea of Galilee. The sea breeze is tickling your face your stomach rumbling in hunger, and your curiosity about this man named Jesus growing and growing. Jesus sits down at the top of the mountain and begins to teach. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> um, the beatitude we'll focus on this morning is in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So as we've read and heard, Jesus' words were really good news for the marginalized and downtrodden people in the crowd. But there would be some people in the crowd that day who would be crushed at Jesus' blessing peacemakers. There were people that were waiting and longing for a Messiah who would come in on a horse and violently lead a revolution against the Roman Empire. So they must have been confused and their dreams of this violent militaristic ruler shattered um, when Jesus talks about peacemakers being blessed in this new kingdom. How about us? What comes to mind when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers? Maybe you think of Mother Teresa, or Gandhi, or that one aunt who always remains very zen and calm, and even in the midst of family drama. And before we nail down what a peacemaker even is, how do we define peace, particularly from a biblical perspective? Is peace simply an absence of conflict, a season of no war? Or is peace that feeling you get when you pray alone in your room? Is biblical peace all of those things, or is it more than that? Does the Bible have a richer, grander, more holistic vision of peace than the one we've been sold by our culture? The answer is yes. Those definitions of peace, they're definitely true, but they're not rich enough to capture the cosmic scope of the peace of our God. I'm sure John and other pastors have talked a lot about the Hebrew word for peace in the Bible, shalom. This describes God's ultimate vision for the world. And again, it doesn't just mean an absence of conflict or peace, but it means total prosperity, wellness, health, and human flourishing for all. This concept of shalom is relational, so it always has to do with our relationships with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with creation. And according to Jesus, peacemakers or shalom makers will be blessed in God's kingdom coming from heaven. And as God's children, you and I, we have this peacemaking gene that our Father has. And we're called to join with God to make all things new in a world that is groaning for peace. So how do we do this? Where in the world do we start? The rest of our time together, I'm just going to talk about three things that we can do, and, or just attempt to do, that will help us to be peacemakers in the way of Christ. So first, biblical peacemakers trust God and God's vision for the world. Second, they are honest about the violence and sin in themselves and in their communities. And third, biblical peacemakers dare to enter dark and messy areas in our world, confident that the Prince of Peace, Jesus, 
will meet us there. So going back to number one, biblical peacemakers trust God and trust God's vision for the world. Over the past five or 10 years, God has been really revealing to me what his gospel truly is, and that maybe the gospel I first heard, though beautiful and life-changing, was kind of small. The gospel I grew up with only involved me and God praying alone together, and it didn't affect the way I treated my family, the way I entered my community, or how I viewed an enemy or someone different than me. So I've begun to uncover as I went to school and studied theology and um, graduated from Fuller a few weeks ago, woo! Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but as I began pouring over the scriptures, I began to see God's bigger vision for the world. And the book of Isaiah really captured my imagination. So Isaiah is a book that Jesus quotes the most in the Gospels. He's always um, talking about Isaiah's beautiful visions. And some of those visions involve wolves and lambs lying down together and swords being beaten into plowshares. And Isaiah 25 is one of my favorite passages, and it gives us a sneak peek of what the fullness of God's reign will look like one day. It's a foreshadowing of what heaven and earth will be like when God's rule and reign envelop the earth to their fullest extent. So Isaiah prophesies, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah 25 depicts what the Beatitudes will look like when they are fully lived out. And as the people of God, we can look forward to this epic feast, and we can also participate in glimpses of this feast today and in the here and now. And this is really good news. Because in our increasingly polarized and harsh political climate, where even good friends have a hard time sitting down next to each other and listening, and in the midst of a news cycle that just seems to be getting more and more dire and evil, highlighting the human trafficking and mass incarceration and migrant crises that plague our world, this vision can be hard to remember and can seem elusive or even like Pollyanna idealism in the face of all that's going on. But this is a vision that we have to trust and that we have to proclaim. Because without God's cosmic peace-sized imagination for peace, we won't get very far. We have to remember that peace isn't something we can muster up or strive for um, or make it happen on our own, but all peace is a gift from our gracious Father in heaven and it all originates with God. And only as we receive God's peace for ourselves can we make peace with others. Only as I accept my identity as God's beloved daughter could I ever begin to imagine a world where my enemy and those people that annoy me and frustrate me 
and believe so different than, different than me, only through God's imagination and God's vision could I imagine a world where we are reconciled um, and where they are caught up in God's peace as well. So Paul explains how this works in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. According to Paul, as Christ followers, we are invited to be ambassadors of reconciliation, proclaiming that the dying world is over and that Christ's reign has begun. In a world starved for hope and starved for creative ways forward out of seemingly intractable cycles of violence and death, we have incredibly good news to proclaim as Christians. We can proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is here. And we can trust that we will experience glimpses of this kingdom in the here and the now, and one day when it comes in its fullness. So we get now that God has this epic vision, and we want to proclaim that. But we also have to be honest about the evil and the sin in our own lives and in our own communities before we can work for genuine peace. I'm sure, or maybe it's just me, but that you guys might have friends where maybe you're having a fight and then you finally ask them like, hey, are we cool, are we good, are we okay? And they're like, yeah, it's fine, it doesn't matter, everything's fine. But you know that it's not fine. Um, unfortunately, a myth that pervades our culture is that forgiveness or peacemaking is just about minimizing, forgetting, pretending it's all good. We hear a lot like, it's fine, it doesn't matter, it wasn't that bad. But this is false, and this is not how God makes peace. And if we want to model our peacemaking after God, we have to remember that God takes sin seriously, and God names our sin, and he nailed our sin to the cross. So we cannot truly forgive someone and we can't truly make peace unless we recognize the evil that they did and the hurt that they caused us. And again, God does not say that sin is not really anything or not a big deal or it's fine. Jesus' death on the cross was needed because sin destroys us and it destroys our world. So genuine peacemaking comes only when we are honest about what went wrong where we messed up, how we fell short. I'm awful at this, but we can all work on saying, you were right, I was wrong. Peacemaking, as I've said, it's not the same as nice making or smoothing things over so we all feel warm and fuzzy and good. Jesus was so kind, but Jesus was not nice. He continually confronted the scribes and the Pharisees over their misunderstanding of the kingdom and he harshly called out anyone who hindered the little ones from entering this kingdom. The prophet Jeremiah illustrates this further when he laments over Judah's failure to be honest about their sin and their brokenness. So the prophet cries out. He says, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. 
They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. So God was angry at his people's false declaration of peace. He harshly judged this people who were so far from repentance that they couldn't even name their own sin and wickedness and mistook it for peace. Earlier on, Jeremiah asks, or he tells um, the people, none of them repent of their wickedness. None of them say, what have I done? So I encourage all of us as individuals, as families, as communities, let us cry out to God in humility and ask God, God, what have I done? Where am I blind? What am I missing? How have I sowed into the hatred and violence that I am so quick to condemn? Show me, God, where I need your mercy and your peace and your grace. And hopefully, as we allow God to convict us in those places um, that maybe we didn't even know we need convicting, maybe God can open us up to weep also for the sin of our enemies. And as we do that, honesty and lament can begin to birth seeds of peace. So we've explored that peacemaking requires trusting God and God's plan, honesty about our sin and brokenness, and lastly, peacemaking requires doing stuff. It requires being brave and entering the messy and dark places in our world, expecting that Jesus is already there working for peace. So I was first drawn to all of you to Living Spring when Pastor John, I met with him in his office, and I, I actually started crying. I don't think he saw me. But because he was sharing stories about all of you and how you, Living Spring, are notorious in Garden Grove for peacemaking. You guys are known as the church that loves people. Um, it's, it's so amazing. Um, so he told me about the Be the Church Sundays, how you guys ditch the church building, and you go out, <laughs> just one Sunday, and you go out and you, you participate in God's peace in the community, you renovate homes. And so I was reading, again, Isaiah, and I read Isaiah 58:12, and I want to share that with you guys because it sounds a lot like living spring. So Isaiah prophesies, some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. So this is what living spring is known for. Um, and I'm so grateful and excited to be a part of this community and to learn from you all um, as we journey together. And so I know I'm preaching to the choir, but as we continue together on this journey, I want to encourage us to continue to show up and enter those messy spaces in our world that we might avoid or we might think, oh, God's not there. Um, but let's be confident that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is there and that the Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation is longing um, to, create, to create peace in those chaotic um, spaces. So when we are in a tense board meeting at work, um, may we embody Christ's peace. When we visit our brothers and sisters in jail, may we embody Christ's peace there. As we teach, as we nurse, um, as we love our children, as we love our families, may we embody Christ, Christ's peace there. Even when we get cut off on the freeway, <laughs> um, may we, yeah, I don't know, we'll see. May we, <laughs> May, 
by the grace of God, may we embody Christ's peace there. Um, when that person we can't stand on Facebook posts something, may we maybe take a minute and try and listen rather than immediately posting that all caps rant. Um, we all can grow, we all can grow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know about you all, but when I see the news, when I look at the violence in my own heart, when I see what's happening in our world, I witness a weary, fearful world that is groaning for peace, a world desperately crying out for God's children, God's son and daughters to live into our calling as beloved peacemakers. Peacemakers who trust God's vision for the world, peacemakers who are honest about the sin and brokenness we are all entangled in, and peacemakers who dare to step into the mess expecting that we will meet Jesus there. God's peace was fully exemplified on the cross. Ephesians 2.14 says it like this, For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. Because of Jesus' life, death, and victorious resurrection, we can embody God's peaceful reign in the here and now, and we can look forward to and point to the coming of God's kingdom in its fullness in the future. So let's go out remembering that God is our peace, that God enables us to make peace, and that God longs to shower his peacemakers with blessing. So as the worship band comes forward, um, I'm going to lead us all in a simple act of peacemaking that we can do from our own seats. So we're going to participate in a prayer of forgiveness. And I want to clear up a few myths about forgiveness. So like we talked about, forgiveness isn't minimizing or saying that something is okay, but forgiveness is simply releasing someone to God and letting God handle it. And forgiveness doesn't mean that we have to trust the person again or doesn't mean we're reconciled yet. It just means we want to give that person to God. So I invite you all to close your eyes and to settle into your chair. And I invite you to feel the back of your chair and to take a few deep breaths in and out. And just let God's peace rest on you. So with your eyes closed, ask Jesus, Jesus, would you show me if there's someone I need to forgive, someone I need to make peace with? It could be your, with yourself or with God or with someone else. So wait on the Holy Spirit as they reveal that person. So now that you have that person in mind, I invite you to imagine that, pers that person in front of you. And in your heart, without minimizing, to tell that person in your heart, you did this and this, and it made me feel like this. Be honest about their sins against you.
God can handle your anger and your pain. So after you've told God they did this and it made me feel this, tell God from your heart, this is the hardest part, God, I break agreement with the accuser and I drop all of the debt that this person owes me. Lord, I give the debt that they do owe me, I give it to you, God. God, I release this debt they owe me to you. Now confess to God the ways that you might have sinned against this person. God, I'm sorry for the unforgiveness, for the judgment and the hatred that I could have felt for this person. I repent for any ways I sinned against them and ask for you to forgive me and to change my heart and heal my wounded places. And finally, proclaim to God in your heart, God, I forgive this person, I release them to you, and I bless them. And then, God, would you show my brothers and sisters, would you show them how you see this person? So God, we thank you that you are a God of peace, a God of healing, a God of wholeness. You long to restore our relationships to you and to each other. And God, any peace, any forgiveness is first a gift from you. So we thank you, God, for your forgiveness for us and for being the peace that allows us to go forth and make peace. So we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.